Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Inside Business and Technology. I'm Kieran Hancock, finance correspondent of the Irish Times, and this week I'm joined in studio by AIB Chief Executive David Duffy. Born in London but raised in Dublin, David Duffy pursued a successful career in banking, filling a number of senior roles abroad at leading international banks. Before returning to Ireland, he held the position of Chief Executive at Standard Bank International, covering Asia, Latin America, the UK and Europe. He was previously head of the Global Wholesale Banking Network at ING Group and President and CEO of ING Franchises in the US and Latin America. Duffy joined AIB in December 2011, accepting the government's salary cap of €500,000. He was the bank's fourth CEO in two years and one of his early tasks was to announce an operating loss of 5.1 billion euro for 2011. Since then he set about restructuring the bank, reducing its cost base by 350 million euro a year, stabilising lending and deposits, tackling its substantial mortgage arrears and improving its offering to customers. Earlier this year AIB received approval for its restructuring plan from the European Commission and AIB has just announced a pre-tax profit of 437 million euro for the six months to the end of June. This compared with a loss of 838 million in euro in the same period of last year. It is also indicated that the bank is being teed up for external investment at a time of the government's choosing. David Duffy, welcome to the studio. Mm, thank you for having me. Um, let's start with the half-year results just published, well ahead of analysts' expectations. Why so? Well, I think the analysts, if you look at how they forecast, they would look at the operating model and what can be modelled that's within the public domain. So they were broadly correct in terms of the operating performance, but what they wouldn't have seen is some of the trading we would do around a very large balance sheet, which are proprietary treasury activities, so they wouldn't have been as visible. And secondly, they hadn't forecast the significant reduction in the impairments as they wouldn't have seen the level of restructuring and ultimate write-backs that were happening. So a little bit hard for them to have visibility on two of the elements, but other than that, they were broadly in line. Okay, what are the key factors to the return to profitability? Well, I think it's it's part of it, the three-year plan, as you know, um, where we set out to have profitability in 14, and it was focused on three areas. You had to get the revenues up, you had to get the cost down, and you had to get your bad debts down. And like any business, a small business in a rural town, it's the same model. Um, so we, we set about um, achieving that during this year, and a lot of work went into designing the bank to, to be able to execute that. And as you will have seen, with the revenues up 36%, I think we've reached a point of real success in terms of how we're growing the business. And with the cost down a further 9%, I think we have the jaws are working very well. And then a material shift of 88% reduction in the bad debts means we've kind of reached a turning point in that cycle. So the three have come together at the right time in, in, in our forecast and helped us to deliver the... Uh, profitability that we have announced um, Were you today. surprised yourself by the strength of the numbers, the profit numbers? Um, I, I think the only surprise element was the effectiveness with which we were restructuring. So that was inside the level of uh, bad debt provisions that we had thought, and we were seeing some write-backs there, and that's probably a little quicker. The revenues were pretty much forecasting that's where we'd go, um, and the costs is almost a, a forecast program. So we knew exactly when we would execute the cost program and when the benefits would arrive. So it's partially unforecastable mm. when you're doing restructuring, but most of the rest of it was uh, working to an organized plan. And in your opinion, the economic recovery that everybody's talking about, is it real or not? Uh, I, I think it is real. I mean, we look at it um, in terms of the overall economy. We, we have a very large distribution network uh, around the country, the largest in, in the country. And 
as we drive around the country, and I do that a lot, I visit most of the branches on an ongoing basis, we're seeing a very different tone, a very different level of conversation. You sit in the chambers of commerce with all the local businessmen, and, and they are much more optimistic. They're talking about investments. They're talking about headcount growth in their businesses. They're talking about capital investments in infrastructure and in machinery. So you're seeing levels of conversation which didn't exist nine months ago at anything like the same you know, volume. So I think Whatever the sector we've looked at over the past year, every single sector has improved in some measure, some faster than others, but every single sector has improved. And you, you spoke about the bad debt provisions, which were down 92, to 92 million euro from 646 million euro a year ago. Um, what does that tell us? Well, that tells you a couple of things. Um, firstly, that uh, the level of provisions we for bad debts that we've set aside in the past reflect what is the actual reality of our book. It tells you that the economy is turning because we're not having to put many more bad debts on the book. And it tells you that our restructuring efforts are being, becoming much more effective as our, our actual outcomes in restructuring are less costly than the provisions set aside for them. So, And some of that's influenced by the economy as well as people see a better environment out there. Yeah, it's not all honey and jam, of course. Your net loans continue to reduce, dropping by about uh, $1.1 billion in the first six months. Uh, you've still got loss-making tracker mortgages. I think the book there is about €13 billion. Euro. Mm-hmm. And it'll take, the bank said earlier, it'll take about 10 to 12 years for that to wash through the system. Uh, and you're currently being subjected to stress tests by um, the yeah. ECB and the European Banking Authority, which could have an, an implication if you fail for your capital levels. Um, what should we expect from the stress tests later this year? Well, I think if you take all three, the net loans, I think uh, the encouraging side of that is that uh, they've, they, the net deleveraging has declined significantly. So we're almost leveling out. So I think as we look at it with the level of approvals up to 42% for businesses, uh, up from last year by 42%, we're seeing that the new business coming in is going to balance out the deleveraging on the business side. So I think we'd say near term, the the deleveraging stops. We're back into a growth model, um, which is essential to the future of the bank. Uh, The trackers themselves, there'll be some level of runoff before those dates. um, And so that the problem in quantum terms will slowly diminish. And if interest rate cycles over the next decade change, you will obviously get more value into that portfolio. But we've built the bank to absorb those carry costs um, and still deliver the performance. In terms of the stress tests, we're very confident about those. I mean, obviously, there's no stress test without an outcome. But we believe that the outcome will suggest that the capital levels that we have generated today um, are sufficient for a bank of our type and, uh, and of our ambition. Um, and most of what's going into that stress test as feedback from us uh, is, is something which uh, is the third or fourth time that we've had to do it. So from the original stress tests, PCAR, right through to now. So we're in a good position in that we're very confident about the quality of what we've submitted, and they, t- they extrapolate from there. So I think we feel confident that our capital levels absolutely are strong, and the quality of what we've submitted is also very good. So that should lead to a good outcome. And your net interest margins at 1.6%. This is the margin basically on what you charge on uh, mortgages and loans mm-hmm. and what you pay out on deposits and so forth. That's at 1.6%. It's well below the 2% level uh, of Bank of Ireland and, and below the 2% level that you've kind of set for the bank um, yourself. Yes, yeah, so, well, it had, come from, it had to come from a very low base. I think the important fact there is that the underlying actual NIM is one82 um, but it's diluted by the existence of NAMA bonds. And as you will have seen in the public statements made by NAMA and the government, those are going to be redeemed and accelerated ahead of schedule. So over the next two years, you'd see that uplift, which would 
be 182 if we normalized it. And then with the continuing momentum and growth of our business, we should get the two. So as I was saying to people in guidance today, we've guided 2% or better, and I'm quite confident that we'll get there. And in terms of profitability and performance, what can we expect in the second half of this year? Um, I think um, more of the same. Um, I would see from the momentum we have that uh, our costs will continue to trend down. We will meet all of our objectives, which was over the three years, 350 million. And we're very close to those levels now. So we'll meet that or slightly exceed that. And on the revenues, based on the forward volume of orders and books we have, I can see that we will do very well in the second half of the year as well. Um, So I I think we're saying that we were confident that, you know, more of the same is what we will expect to be able to announce when we get to the results for the full year. Right. And in terms of senior personnel, there have been some changes of late. You have a new chairman coming on board, a new chief operating officer, Mark Burke. Is your new uh, chief financial officer. He took the results today for the first time. Uh, but there have also been reports of some other changes to the senior executive team with Fergus Murphy and Bernard Byrne taking on some slightly different roles. Can you shed any light on that for us? Yeah, I think um, people tend to get excited about small changes. I mean, uh, the strategy we have isn't changing. The structure is largely similar. What we're doing is looking at the arrival of a CFO and COO and giving the bank a full and clear understanding of their mandate. So that's just a new thing, but as part of their arrival. Um, we're also looking at what would you do in terms of a improving economy that needs more products amongst the customer base and are there new products we should add? And, and we're looking at that over the next couple of months. And lastly, we're taking the customer at the very center of the strategy and we're asking ourselves, the top team, do we need to add enhanced accountability? So those are refinements to what we're doing. The, the key principles, leaders at the team are going to be largely doing the same job and we just may add activities to the job. So it's not a big restructuring, it's an evolution of our strategy and an enhancement of people's roles. Okay, let's talk about mortgage arrears. It's still there, it hasn't gone away in spite of the improved uh, economy. You told an Oireachtas committee uh, a while back that there was a huge level of strategic default on mortgage arrears. What's your view now? Um, I think people argue probably a little bit more about the terminology than the substance of the conclusion. Um, uh, I, I would refer you to the IMHO where we have said here's a, uh, a customer advocate body that has a trust level with the the consumer or the customer that we wouldn't have for historical reasons. Um, And that's been very successful. We've done over 700 cases there, and there's quite a few hundred in the pipeline. But that being said, 16% of those cases, the answer has been pay your mortgage. So that would give you an indication of those are people who have been into the legal process after not paying for a number of years. So I think that's quite significant. So I think there is an element of that, but mostly now I think we've we've got to the position where the volume of our capacity is there, the products are there, the collaborations are there with those institutions, and we have seen a big step up in engagement, which is why we've moved down by 6% overall and then 9% in the homeowner t- category. And the other point I'd make is that those statistics are, are trend statistics, but they're not absolutes around the stock of arrears and what's been dealt with. So 90% of our customers have been offered a solution, and of those, 40% actually are in a contractual arrangement. They still count in the arrears statistics published nationally until they have performed for a period of time. So we believe that over the next couple of years, we'll see the stock jump down in terms of they'll roll off from arrears as they have performed against the restructure. And how many accounts in arrears in 90 days plus? Um, off the top of my head, I don't know the exact number. Um, it's just I know that the relative decline has been 9%. So, mm. so that's the key in the homeowners category. Okay. How many repossessions this year? Uh, there, well, in total, we have 80 repossessions, and the great bulk of those are voluntary, so not repossessions we forced. 
so just people give them back the keys. Yeah. And in those situations, what does AIB do about the residual debt? I mean, Bank of Ireland has talked about chasing people for that residual debt. What's AIB's policy? Well, in, in, it's a very deliberate policy that um, in a voluntary sale, for example, where somebody agrees to sell the house and you have a shortfall, we do not pursue the individual for that residual debt. Okay. And you talked about the IMHO deals. You said 700-plus Solutions have been have been agreed. How many of those um, have involved? How many of those cases have involved uh, write downs of some sort or another? Um, we, we don't publish exact figures on that, but there are, there is a healthy number that have. Um, they're on the same basis of calculation and the same principles as we would do in AIB, because uh, we have to review all the cases jointly and make a decision together. Um, so it, but it's always where the case is absolutely clear that it is an unsustainable level of debt. And I'll give you an example where where some of this works for the shareholder and for the taxpayer themselves. Um, a person was in a, and it was a, I think, a publicised case, so I can speak more freely. But uh, a, a house worth four hundred and um, a, a possible foreclosure um, and on sale would have been a hundred in realisable value. Um, and in the circumstance, we ended up in an agreement with the customer where they would service a debt level of 200, and then as part of that, we would write off a chunk of the residual. So what you had was someone staying in their home, servicing more debt than the state would have got by foreclosing, and both parties win. So the, the principle of debt write-off deals with unsustainable debt, but tries to foster a solution where both parties are advantaged in the outcome. And how much have you written off to date? Um, well, we haven't disclosed any of those numbers, and we tend not to, as a, it's a number that only creates more sensational headlines. But we are very confident that what we've written off is absolutely sensible and justifiable by the individual circumstances. And how many repossessions would you expect to do from those accounts that are in arrears? We're not expecting a huge volume of repossessions, as we find that uh, the great number of, of negotiations in those situations leads to a, a good outcome. Um, we, but are we talking about hundreds, maybe? Uh, yeah, maybe, but it would be difficult to get to that level based on what I can see today. Mm. And what's your own view of the new insolvency and bankruptcy arrangements? There's been a lot of criticism from opposition politicians and certain uh, advocates. Uh, what's your own view? Um, I believe it's absolutely critical and necessary to have it. Um, I think there were perhaps unrealistic expectations about the volume that would arrive on the doorstep. Maybe it was seen too easily as a panacea for the ills of the country. I think the very uh, the, the, the truth is the lack of volume is a good thing because it's getting addressed in restructurings in banks. And so, but I think if, part of the criticism, isn't it, is, is that the banks have too much power in this process? Well, not if you're restructuring to uh, and getting successful solutions mm. that are like the example I described, advantageous to the customer as well as the bank, they won't end up in that position. If there was a solution which the bank had too much power and was in a veto position, you could make that argument. But to date, in all of our dealings with the insolvency practice, we have not had a single veto. Okay. Well, David Hall, who heads up the IMHO, who you have your mm. project running with. Um, he's certainly not a fan of uh, these arrangements. He's very critical of them. I think lots of people from different vantage points have different criticisms. I believe that the institution mm. needed to be established. I think the practice needed to be available in terms of going through an insolvency situation, looking at the debt relief and different solutions. That, in any society, as a matter of fact, needs to be there. I think this is mostly about expectation management versus a reality. It is very good for the customer and very good for the economy if people don't end up in bankruptcy and there's a better solution. I think banks have perhaps been more motivated in some cases because of its existence to be more effective in their dealings with customers. So there's a win-win at the end of the day, I think, for everybody. Okay, let's talk about the housing market because obviously we've seen in the past year a sharp rise, uh, rise in house prices, particularly in Dublin, up 25% in the past uh, 12 months or so. Are we at risk of another property bubble? 
Um, I don't think so. I think that, well, first off, the overall house prices have not risen by, or have fallen uh, so far that even with these increases, they're still 45% down below the peak pricing. The, the house price increase in Dublin, as I said before, has been a bit excessive in my opinion, but it's not representative of what's happening around the country. So the first point is in the national sense, you're seeing stabilization with marginal incremental increases. Dublin is a capital city and typically when these cycles turn, the employment is attracted to the capital city and most of the things that affect house prices start being generated in the capital. When you have six years of not building behind that, you have a natural supply and demand crunch. I think the effective solution has to be that the government strategy which they've announced is affected. The developers and ourselves work together behind that strategy to deliver house building. And we are in a position now where the latest update for us is that we are in talks with developers to finance over 5,000 homes being built. And in it, Dublin? In Dublin and surrounding areas in the country. But in Dublin, the, the preponderance is in Dublin. And if we are de- successful in delivering that and other banks, let's say on a prorated basis, are doing the same thing, then you will get to the level of house build, which will be more of a normalized level for the economy and its demographics today. And that will ease any pressures on house pricing. Right. Tell us a little bit about uh, more about that. How are you going to support these developers? How much money are we talking about? Well, it, it, can, it depends on uh, the stages of delivery per annum, but you're talking about probably 500 to a billion, depending on what gets off the ground and what gets approved for per planning annum. permissions per annum. Um, some of that will be in uh, development finance, some of it will be in construction, some of it will be in mortgages. So it's different categories of finance, but in the absolute envelope, absolute envelope would be in that order of magnitude. Okay. And how many developers are you currently in talks with? Um, it's, there's about six different groups, but um, it's early stages yet as they're all reacting to the government strategy and developing their own strategy. So we've made it very clear that we're lending in all those categories of debt mm. and we're financing in all those areas and we're happy to engage with them. And then similarly, we're sitting with NAMA and as they look to get back into the markets, we're sitting alongside them and saying, well, how can we joint venture invest in either supply of land, building of infrastructure around that supply of land, which is sometimes necessary before you build, then the actual construction and then the mortgages. So we, we're going right back to the supply levels and working with NAM on that front. Okay. And how long to get those 5,000 homes built? Um, it really depends on the developers and how quickly they can mobilize their resources. Right. But we would, we would like to see traction in 15, significant traction in 2015. And do you want to tell us who those developers are? No. <laughs> <laughs> Would you expect to do a deal with the six or will it be two no, or three I, of I the think six we or? approach it as um, absolutely those that are, are stable and creditworthy. And I don't care what their provenance is, so long as they are credible, have the resources mm. and are, are able to deliver on the promise that they are making. Because the lack of housing is obviously inhibiting first-time buyers from getting onto the property exactly. ladder, and they've got to be a key market for you, even though you're increasing your mortgage share. Mm-hmm. Um, the lack of first-time buyers must be a bit well, of a Well, mar- absolutely. The market's estimated between 2.5 and $3 billion this year, a normalized market somewhere in the 8 to 10 range, um, depending on the macroeconomic conditions versus the 40, which was the peak. So we have a long way to go to get to a normalized market. You won't get there unless you're supplying something in the region of 15,000 houses a year. So that's the rough... Uh, metrics around it. So we're absolutely committed to trying to make that happen. Now, ECB interest rates at the minute are already close to zero. Uh, what's your view on where they'll go over the next two years? I think they'll stay stable. I think Europe needs to really show growth. Um, I think an awful lot of what the ECB is working on is the transmission mechanism and the funding of SMEs because they see that as the core for the stability and growth of Europe. Um, most of the meetings I've engaged in across Europe are geared towards exactly that, trying to build that confidence, provide that finance, and that will mean that interest rates will have to stay low for a period of years. And what would your advice be to uh, potential buyers fix or variable? 
Um, I don't think I'd have a, a strong view on it either way because the products are so different and cover such different periods of time. So my view on it is um, if you have the affordability, you should come and discuss it with us. There will be options tailored to different people's circumstances. There's no one-size-fits-all. Okay, let's talk about the state aid. AIB received £20.8 billion um, today uh, in state aid. I know, I think your results today said you've paid back £2 billion in mm-hmm. various uh, fees to date, but it's 99.8% owned by the state. And while Bank of Ireland has managed to deliver um, more than what it received from the state uh, already, and the state still holds a 14% interest, AIB isn't at that uh, level yet. But you've talked in the last number of months of uh, positioning AIB for external investment. What are, what are your plans? Well, I think we look at it uh, fairly simply. It's taken us a lot longer to get there because AIB, first off, had $20 billion rather than comparable $5 billions. We also were in a very, very difficult position. We were merging an EBS. We were integrating Anglo deposits. So the whole organization was in a massive uh, multi-corporate action kind of uh, space for a period of time. Many changing CEOs, as you've mentioned yourself. And so we had to sort all that out. That's sorted out, and we put a plan for profitability, which is the first step. And if we pass the stress test, then we were in a position where I would like to say next year that AIB is a sustainably profitable bank that is well capitalized, um, has approval from Europe, has a declining trend in arrears, and has managed to do all of its restructurings, or the good portion of them, inside the envelope of its provisions. NPLs or net loan book exposures, which are material, have dropped 10% this year and would continue that trend. If you've got that list of deliverables that you can speak to um, in the full year's results, then the bank is investable, provided that we address its capital structure. So what you will have is a position where, at the minister's discretion, you will have investors looking at it and saying, what is it that your plans are, and this is our price, or there'll be a value equation discussion, which is really between the investor and the minister as the owner. What we said is our commitment is to deliver a bank that investors will look at, can compare to other banks, will look at its market share, its yield, and and dividend, and say, we think that's attractive, here's what we'd pay for it, and let the minister decide. Right. I mean, there are contingent capital notes there, there are preference shares there, and then there's the equity stake. Uh, How do you see the sequence working out? Well, I think we, we've been very deliberate in waiting to see uh, what happens with the stress test. But let's assume it's a positive outcome. Then we will enter into discussion with the, the government as a shareholder around how much of the PREF shares for B3 compliance reasons we would convert and whether some of them could be repaid. We would then look at refinancing the COCO. So that's the first stage, looking at in the totality of our capital requirements, subject to regulatory approval, how would you give back what amount of capital? And that would be in addition to the $2 billion already. And then the sale process is, again, as I said, at the discretion of the minister subsequent to that capital restack. Yeah, and you've been having discussions with the Department of Finance now for some time, haven't you? Sure. How are those discussions progressing and what, what sense do you have from them as to when they'd like to do this? Um, we've never gotten around to the exact timing. The real conversation is about when will you be ready? And then we've not talked about and so we'll do it on any particular date. The real issue of discussion has been about making sure we deliver well on the stress test. And as a consequence of that, what are the alternatives for refinancing the rest of the capital base and restacking it? What are the regulatory obstacles? Do we have to raise money in markets for that? All those kinds of technical discussions. We've developed lots of scenarios around those depending on the outcome. So we're really in a strategy and planning phase without setting deadlines until mm. we see the stress test. I think it's valued, AIB is valued on the NPRF's books at about 11.5 billion euro, the NPRF being the National Pension Reserve mm-hmm. Fund. Um, and you received a bailout of 20.8 billion euro. Mm-hmm. So how much of that 20.8 billion euro can we realistically expect to get returned to the state? 
I think we should take the view that it'll all be returned. Um, you don't sell the whole bank in one day, so you don't say today's value is, let's sell it, and you crystallize a loss. I think if you've had the 11.5 billion as a valuation, let's take it, I haven't seen the science of it, but let's assume it's reasonable, and then you add the 2 billion we've paid already, that's 13.5 billion, maybe there's a billion or two of capital can come back as well. Just imagining you could get to 15 billion. Then you don't sell it all, you sell a portion of it, and over a multiple period of years, your value is increasing on the residual value, and you're getting dividends in between. So whatever that calculation is, it will mean that we would look to be able to repay the full amount, even if it takes a slightly longer period. Over what number of years, do you think? It, it depends on the dividend, and that depends on the residual value, and that depends on the market. So it's very hard to be scientific. But in most of the Scandinavian models, which had a banking crisis, have exactly that process. You, you're paying back in taxes of some sort, you're paying back some capital dividends, and then you do a sale at a certain value, and then you pay dividends out of the profits every year, and then you sell the remainder. And the objective is you just mm. flex that accordion until the time mm. comes where you can repay the full amount. And what about a dividend? When might that be paid next? Well, it's, that'll be a function of when the government decides to do the sale. Right. Um, so we, we will just take direction on that. Right. Is that factored into the European Commission uh, restructuring plan, when you can pay a dividend and when you can't pay a dividend? Well, they have limits uh, for a couple of years on that, but they're really mm-hmm. talking about their overall objective is the government returns the bank to state ownership and the minister's made that statement himself. So I think between the European Commission, the minister and ourselves, there's a full agreement on timing. Yeah. Now, a little while back, you raised the issue of bonuses with the Department of Finance which uh, received a few headlines and some negative uh, publicity. Um, we hear that the minister uh, isn't in favour of doing that. What was your thinking behind that? Um, well, just to be just precise about it, we didn't actually raise bonuses. We didn't request bonuses. Um, I didn't get involved in the discussion. It's the board's decision to do those things. Um, and that's not an excuse. It's just that the board has the, the responsibility to determine what those, those uh, solutions should be. They went for a, an exploratory discussion to say, in the environment down the road where you are a profitable bank and you are meeting all the shareholder targets, and if in a competitive environment for the rest of the economy, you are going to face risk of losing key people, etc. What should the strategy be? What would other state institutions be considering? It was exploratory. It unfortunately turned into a much more of uh, an emotive debate. And so the reality is we weren't asking for bonuses. You're looking at long-term incentives. You weren't asking for senior people. You're looking at the total bank. How do you protect the bank and keep it stable and therefore enhance the value for the shareholder? If you come forward to today, there's a very simple answer. I signed up my contract Uh, a couple of months ago on an open-ended basis. Um, I signed it on the original terms, but kept in place the original 15% voluntary cut below the cap. That so I just to be clear, you're, you're, it's 500,000 minus 15%. That's what you're earning exactly. at the minute. Exactly. And, and that, uh, the cap was 500, so it doesn't have to be so cut. So what's that, 425? Yeah, it's yeah. in the low 420. So, so at the end of the day, I've implemented my own strategy, which is stay within the cap, even though we're profitable, and cut it 15%, as that's the voluntary gesture we made before. So I don't have a motivation to go after large sums of money. The executive is not looking for it. We are looking to deliver maximum shareholder value, and then down the road, let the board and the minister decide what's appropriate and when. Yeah, okay. Um, obviously, as you return to profitability, there's going to be pressure on in terms of pay, um, because staff have suffered either pay freezes or pay cuts over the last uh, number of years, along with um, a, a reduction in, in the headcount. Uh, how do you see that developing? Um, I think naturally uh, we have unions in the bank, and, I, and naturally they will say well, you've returned to profit. Um, I, I think the, the 
the criteria can't just be you've returned to profit. I don't think the criteria of return to profit then means bonuses. I think if you're going to try to reward staff, it has to be when we've started returning taxpayer funds. And so that's the threshold we set ourselves in our mind that we have to be sustainably profitable, but be in a place we mm. are where we are returning to the taxpayer significant amounts of that 20 billion before there's any tolerance for a discussion of that kind. Okay. And you're finished with your voluntary severance program, Sarah? Yeah, the bulk of the program is done. There's some timing issues around very small amounts where we, we kept them for task-oriented activities. Um, but 3,600 people have left the bank in the last uh, 18 months. Um, so the program on a formal basis is finished. But it doesn't mean that there won't be further attrition over time and we will look to optimize the structure of the bank as a business-as-usual bank in normal course. Sure. Now, Taoiseach Enda Kenny um, said he was promised a bank recap, um, presumably for Bank of Ireland and AIB. Do you, do you think that's ever going to happen? This is by our European partners, but do you think realistically it'll no, ever happen? No, I can't really comment because I'm not in those discussions in Europe. Um, so I don't know what he was told or what he believes. Um, so I'm not really able to make an, an enlightened comment on that. Yeah, OK. Let's talk about yourself. How did you get into banking in the first place? Accidentally. Um, it sounds really ridiculous, but uh, I was in London and I was working for a small uh, fund management company and uh, somebody who was a partner of mine at the time said, you should go to Goldman Snacks. Um, <laughs> and I looked at her and thought it was the equivalent of Tato or something because they're paying more money and you might try. So I went along and uh, upon entering the building discovered it was Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> but it was only 200 people at the time, so maybe that mistake could be more easily made. But it was that accidental, uh, and I, I, I wandered into the building, met an individual, we had a great conversation, and he said, go down and tell the person you're hired. Um, and that started out my career in banking, so it was a little accidental. Um, and from there I went on to uh, a decade of working in that institution, uh, which was a fantastic formative experience, and then subsequent uh, two more banks that I worked in before I came to AIB. ING and Standard Chartered. Yes, uh, Standard Bank, which is slightly different than Standard Chartered, but um, the ING group, after 10 years in Goldman Sachs, I went there because they were very acquisitive. They had a global franchise, and not just in investment banking, but in retail, asset management, other areas. And I had a phenomenal experience in emerging markets uh, as well as developed markets there. And then lastly, I ended up in Standard Bank, where the one area of the world I hadn't experienced and I thought was fundamental to the future of the, the world economy was um, Africa and the China-Africa axis. And they had been talking to me for some time about whether I'd like to get involved. So I joined them as the CEO of their international business to build that out. And why did you decide to come home to Ireland to run AIB? Um, again, uh, an element of serendipity. Uh, I had uh, been based in Singapore for Standard Bank and uh, as the markets changed, the level of investment we wanted to do there wasn't possible. So I'd retired from the bank and I was starting up my own business, um, enjoying just the flexibility of that and perhaps not being regulated for a while. Um, and I was back in uh, London working on behalf of an Irish company to raise finance in Singapore, talking to Goldman Sachs people about some of the expertise I needed. And Peter Sutherland uh, ran into me in the corridor. I'd know him quite well. And he suggested that uh, he had a great idea and that I should become the CEO of AIB. And uh, needless to say, I didn't leap at the opportunity just at that moment. Um, uh, but subsequently, I was contacted by headhunters within a few weeks who were also mandated for the role and asked me if I'd come back and have a discussion. And I did that. And then uh, six months later, after a further series of discussions, uh, I came back. Even though the pay at the time was only half a million euro, I mean, presumably you could have earned more in other roles in other parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, in the previous career, yes, you would earn more. Um, I think I looked at it a little bit slightly differently. I felt that um, the, the taking the job was more about, is it deliverable? 
Uh, if you look at the mess that uh, you know the country was found itself in and the consequences in AIB as well, um, I had to be sure of that. Uh, secondly, my family lived in West Cork, my parents, um, and uh, you know brothers and sisters, so there was a lot of a natural base for me to be here. And thirdly, um, after talking to a lot of senior people here, there didn't seem to be that many people who would be Irish didn't have a tainted background and had a broad experience that might be relevant to the job. And, and I honestly felt that um, I could sit in the sun getting a tan in Singapore and making more money and then fly home on trips and see that uh, things were terrible. And I, it just didn't sit well. That was basically what happened. It took a little bit of time to get into my system. Um, but once uh, I'd gotten a level of digestion about it, I felt that for a period of time in my life, why not? make the contribution and see if I could do it. It was also an enormous challenge. So both things worked in, in favour of me taking the job. And what did you find on entering AIB? Um, it was just it was difficult. I, I found a very demoralised population of people, um, not just economically impacted, but you know with the constant changes of CEOs and, uh, and the suggestions of whether or not it was viable. So a lot of distress and, and demoralised people. Um, a lack of the direction because people weren't sure what the strategy should be severance programs that have been sitting around for 15 months. So an environment crying out for clarity and leadership. That was really the, the thing that you could see everywhere you went. Um, the executives themselves, um, you know, they were um, perhaps not fully cognizant of the damage caused. Um, there was an element of an institution that had uh, run things its way for a very long time. So all of those elements were in the mix. But at its heart, a lot of really talented people. And so I knew... The biggest realization I came to was if I could tap the right group of people in that bank who had real capabilities, provide leadership and direction, I needed to get a new leadership team for that, then I thought we had a reasonable chance of making it. And when you looked under the bonnet uh, and you looked at the past lending practices, were you shocked? Um, I was disappointed. I mean, I, I think the, the most practices in banks are around having a good risk appetite statement and understanding where you are placing your bets. So you don't place everything on black versus red. You have, in like in your private life, investments in different categories. So you have a diversity. And it just seemed that maybe it was the herd mentality, but everybody was trying to compete with Anglo and everybody was piling into property. So and an enormous mistake where perhaps the core principles of diversity of risk weren't observed. And that was the very disappointing thing because the issue could have been avoided. And you've just recently accepted a permanent contract effectively with the bank, haven't you? Yes. How long do you see yourself here? Um, I don't have any restriction on it. It's not to say forever. I'm not planning to uh, retire in AIB. But I think the view I've taken with the board is when the job is done. And I don't know when that will be yet. I see us spending another couple of years managing the bank into a high-performance bank where we have a good reputation for delivery with our customers, good service with our customers. We've dealt with arrears, we've dealt with non-performing loans, and hopefully we've begun a successful process of bringing them back into private hands and return the state funds. If we get to that point, then I will think about it again, but I don't know when that point is yet, as that's largely at the discretion of the Minister. And all things being equal, how long do you think AIB will be in majority state ownership? Well, I would hope that over the next three to four years that problem will be solved. Um, and I think the, it's in the, um, the, the statements from the government that that's what they want. Um, it's what Europe would like to see. And it's certainly from the, the economic health of Ireland a good thing as you can operate as a very commercial bank so with commercial um, policies. So I think that would be a good answer if we could achieve it by then. Okay. David Duffy, thank you for your time. Thank you very much.
Okay, that's it for this week. I'd like to thank the producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer JJ Vernon. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.